The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1868, a publisher asked one of his most prolific authors to write a girl's story, a book for and about girls. The author refused, telling a friend, quote, I could not write a girl's story knowing little about any but my own sisters and always preferring boys, end quote. But when her father, a broke and at times broken down philosopher and educator, asked her to try, she finally agreed. I plod away, she wrote in her diary, although I don't enjoy this sort of thing. Perhaps she didn't, but the world did. Her name was Louisa May Alcott, and Little Women, the book she wrote in record time for money, became an immediate hit. The four March sisters, patterned after Louisa May and her siblings, have been popular all over the world ever since. In 2009, Alcott scholar Harriet Risen cited a Korean woman who had said, quote, You don't grow up to walk two steps behind your husband when you've met Joe March. End quote. But who was this self-professed tomboy who adapted the lives of four girls into the literary world? How did her parents, particularly her father, the utopian philosopher and educator Bronson Alcott, influence her? What were the secret sensationalist novels she wrote under pseudonyms, and how did her milieu, the world of conquered Massachusetts before, during, and after the Civil War, influence the world she saw and the world she chose to write about? Louisa May Alcott, today, on The History of Literature. Here we go. November and literature, a great combination. Start making those holiday wish lists, people, or those New Year's resolutions. There's a lot of good reading to be done, a lot of great reading, and a lot of great living. Time to squeeze life for all it can give you, and that might mean reading more and thinking more as you expand those horizons. We'll certainly be doing that this week. On today's show, we're discussing Louisa May Alcott and Little Women. Welcome to the podcast, by the way. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Thankful as ever this Thanksgiving month. Today is all things Alcott. Louisa May and Bronson. And next episode, we will have the second of our classics remixed. This one, an interview with a woman who has remixed Little Women, covering ground that Louisa May Alcott failed to explore, which is exciting too. But today we have to get moving because the Alcotts are an incredible family. As compelling as the marches are, nine times out of ten, I prefer fictional families to the real deal. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, I'd even say. But in this case, the marches cannot hold a candle to the real-life Alcotts because nobody really can. Bronson Alcott is such a unique figure, which doesn't mean he's likable all the time. He seems hard to like and hard not to like. That seems to be how he was treated in his day, and also that's my view reading about him now. Maybe that's how impractical idealists always are, and the closer you get to them, the stronger the feelings, both for good and for ill. So, let's begin with Bronson. But first, let me ask you a question. Dear listener, where do you fit in your family? 
observed objectively from the outside. I once heard the argument or the observation that many Americans, maybe people around the world, followed this pattern. The first-generation American works hard, toils away, blue-collar, that kind of thing, coal mining, farming, factory working. His goal is for his children to go to college so they don't have to work their fingers to the bone. The next generation goes to college, gets a job in an office, a white-collar job, sells something maybe, or manages people, works their way up, owns a business. The third generation grows up in comfort, sees the grandfather with the dirt under his fingernails, don't, don't want to follow that path, sees the parents with money and success. That's not really the path to follow either. The third generation decides to become an artist. Now, you can put all kinds of variations on that. Maybe one of these stages takes a few generations. Maybe there's a few blue collars. Maybe there's a few white collars. Maybe the child doesn't want to become an artist, but wants to make even more money. Maybe it takes three or four generations before one can even go to college. It's by no means an ironclad rule. But what I like about the idea is that it exposes how important parents and children are to one another and the symbiotic choices that they make. We can say, I want to be X. No matter what, I'm going to pursue it. That's my destiny, and everyone else can do what they want to, including my family members. This is all about freedom, right? But it doesn't always work like that. Your decision to be X might mean that your family does not get to do what they want. I have a friend who grew up the youngest of four siblings. Their family was wealthy and important, and the plan was for the older brother to take over the business, which I won't describe out of my personal friendship to these people. If I tell you anything about it, you could probably figure out who this is. It's a huge manufacturing business. The oldest son was supposed to take it over from the grandfather and the father. The youngest son was free to play around. He wasn't the heir. He was the spare. He played tennis and learned martial arts and played guitar. And then the brother started stumbling in his early 20s mid-twenties, late-twenties. Temperamentally, he was not suited for this role, this life. He made mistakes, bad decisions. He was not reliable. The family business was not in good hands, and suddenly my friend, the youngest son, who never imagined a life for himself that was anything but fairly easy, had to step up. The family depended on him not because he wanted that role, but because his brother didn't. Where are you in your generational divide? Did the people in the generations before you do what they wanted to do? How has that worked out? Or did they make sacrifices for you? And how did that work out? Are you planning to do what you want to do? Or are you working so that your children and grandchildren will be free to pursue whatever they want? which brings us to Bronson Alcott. Born in 1799, he went to school for a while in a one-room schoolhouse in Connecticut that lasted until he was 10. When he was 13, an uncle took him in and planned to educate him to prepare him for college. That lasted one month. He educated himself after that, walking the fields and listening to God, as he later put it. At 15, he got a job with famous clockmaker Seth Thomas, 
He had a dream, though, Bronson did, of educating others. So he got a teaching certificate. But when he couldn't find work, he headed for the American South and tried to sell books and merchandise. He was 17 now, and his plan was to help his parents, to help free them from their debts. He said grandly, to make their cares and burdens less. Instead, he spent the money he earned on a new suit for himself. Then he decided that peddling things was not good for his spiritual well-being. He quit and returned home, in debt to his father. For the rest of his life, he seems to have done exactly what he wanted to do at all times and damned the consequences. What he wanted to do was live according to his ideals. Again and again, Bronson Alcott proved himself to be something of a visionary in the worlds of education and philosophy, and he threw himself into his endeavors with 100% commitment and an unyielding ardor. But on a practical level, he failed over and over. He developed ideas for reforming schools, which drew some pupils initially, but soon turned entire communities against him. He wrote books of philosophy that others found incoherent. He befriended other intellectuals and fellow thinkers and activists, but they found his ideas almost unintelligible. He moved his family to a utopian community. We have liberated attractive land from human ownership, he declared. We will live off the land, not eating any meat, not drinking coffee or milk or alcoholic drinks, no warm bath water. Our wine is water, he said. Our flesh, bread. (laughs) Our drugs are fruits. We will not wear leather because of animals, nor cotton, silk, or wool, which resulted from slave labor. A friend of his put up most of the money. I do not see anyone to act the money part but myself, the friend said. Bronson allowed his friend to pay $1,500 out of the $1,800 needed to buy the land and said, We will pay you back. The Alcotts shall pay you back over the next two years. When they got their 100 acres, he pointed to 10 old apple trees and said, We shall call this new Eden Fruitlands. They were broke in seven months. Louisa May was 10 years old when the family went through this experiment. When she returned to the world of her childhood years later, she sent the fictional father off to the war. The first line of her book is, Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. The second line is, It's so dreadful to be poor, sighed Meg. Abigail, Bronson's wife, was not happy. She had been drawn to his ideas, many of which were good and ahead of their time. He believed in teaching a child holistically, not just cramming facts into their brains with rote memorization. He thought there were truths within each student, and it was the job of the school and the educational experience to draw those truths out. Students were taught to write not by copying out words from a book, but by writing about personal experiences that were meaningful to them. He asked them to think about miracles in the Bible, to see if they were literal or if there was a truth to them as metaphor or example. He admitted an African-American child to his class and refused to expel him, even after other parents protested. He was against routine punishment. He thought the students should get together to decide what the proper punishment for a fellow student should be. 
Mostly, he was against corporal punishment. In fact, he had the idea that when a student got something wrong, made an error, the teacher should hold out his hand to be struck by the student, on the principle that it was the teacher who had failed. Ronson thought the shame and guilt of being forced to hit a teacher in front of one's fellow classmates might encourage the child to do better next time. I can only imagine the relish with which my own fifth-grade classmates would have teed off on the poor souls who were there to teach us. A few of us might have felt shame and guilt. Others would have said, Hand me that paddle, teach. I got enough wrong answers in me to last us till spring. Bronson was friends with Thoreau and Emerson, who lent him money. He once sold a house to Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was in the Transcendental Club along with a dozen or so others, including Elizabeth Peabody and Julia Ward Howe. He was an ardent abolitionist, and with William Lloyd Garrison, he founded an anti-abolitionist movement. No, an abolitionist movement, anti-slavery movement. In fact, he was the first one not to pay his poll tax in protest against the annexation of Texas as a slave territory, going to jail instead, an action that inspired Thoreau, and the later inspiration for the essay, Civil Disobedience. His writings, Bronson's writings, were published and continually failed. Impenetrable, they were called. Hard to read, hard to follow. It almost seems as if his friends heard him out in conversation, thought there might be something to it, helped him publish his works, only to realize that his written thoughts were even harder to comprehend. He wrote a book on education that sold so poorly that a lawyer ended up buying 750 copies dirt cheap to use as waste paper. He wrote a compilation of Orphic thoughts that a reviewer said was like a 15-car locomotive with a single passenger. Later in life, Bronson recalled something that happened when he was a boy. He threw rocks at the sun. In doing so, He fell down and dislocated his shoulder. This was my destiny, he said, to aim at the sun and to pay the price for the fall. When his mother asked him what he was doing for an occupation, he wrote back to her, still at my old trade, hoping. But he had Louisa May, his second daughter. Louisa May wrote under a number of names. She wrote hot fiction, something like 270 or 275 published works. She was a factory of writing. My little scheme of three generations that I started with, the blue collar to the white collar to the artist, that scheme stops with the dreamer. It doesn't say what happens to the dreamer's children. In the case of the Alcott's, the dreamer's children put aside their own dreams. Louisa May was funding him and caring for him all of his life. I am going up, the 88-year-old Bronson said to Louisa May as he was lying on his deathbed. Come with me. I wish I could, she said. He died three days later. Louisa May was free now in the sense of that the long period of providing for her father and those he impoverished was no more. But he had lived a long time, and her period of freedom from that particular burden would not be long. 
She herself died two days after that. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the childhood that Louisa May had, her work as a Civil War nurse, and her advocacy for women's rights, and of course, the writing that led to her being on a postage stamp. The first woman author so honored in the U.S. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Louisa May Alcott was born in 1832 in Pennsylvania near Philadelphia, but her life was spent in Massachusetts. When she was two, her parents moved to Boston, where Bronson befriended Emerson and Thoreau and established his experimental school. Bronson, by the way, it's going to be hard to leave Bronson behind for a couple of reasons. First, his influence so dominated the Alcott family. Louisa's mother, Abigail, resented Bronson's impracticality and inability to see that for all his beliefs in perfectibility and achieving a higher spiritual state and all of his transcendentalist transcendentalist goals, he missed that his wife and four daughters were not treated equally in society or by society and what that meant for them. And for all of his, well, I'll just stick my neck out and live free and according to my principles, turning down jobs because he couldn't see eye to eye with his employers or not compromising even his wilder beliefs. All of his dreaming his way into utopias, he left the five women or the women and four girls at first to pick up the pieces, going hungry sometimes. This was not lost on Louisa May. In her very first book, she wrote, I wish I was rich, I was good, and we were all a happy family. Here's the second reason why it's hard to leave Bronson behind. He's such a fascinating creature, and he stumbles into absolutely everything. (laughs) Thoreau died. I mentioned Thoreau. I forgot to tell you. Thoreau died. It turned out it was probably a death due to a disease that Bronson had given him. But let's turn our focus to Louisa May. When she was eight, the family moved to Concord, Massachusetts, living in the house they later sold to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Thoreau was around and gave Louisa May lessons at Walden Pond. My God, what a literary miracle. 
that those two overlapped like that. She later wrote a poem about him, Thoreau's Flute, which called him the genius of the wood. She also was taught, or at least learned in some fashion, from Emerson and Hawthorne and Margaret Fuller and Julia Ward Howe. At 10, the family moved to Fruitlands, the utopian community, and Louisa May noticed that the men decided they would not use any oxen or animals to help till the soil because they viewed beasts of burden as a form of enslavement, so they went out themselves with their shovels, but within a few hours decided that no... This was too hard. They'd better use animals or they would never get it done. The spading by hand was hard work. Ideals did not always translate into muscular action. In Bronson's world, lots of airy ideas, lots of conversation, lots of educating others. Not as much sweat and toil. One form of action that they did take, the Alcotts, was to serve as station masters on the Underground Railroad. They met Frederick Douglass, and they housed a fugitive slave for a week as he made his way north. She was also, Louisa May, was also a suffragist, admiring the movement, and she later became the first woman to register to vote in Concord when she registered and then voted for school board. She also didn't have as much time to participate as she wished, Later in life, as she cranked out books and stories for money to help the family stay afloat, as Bronson capered his way through his philosophic endeavors. But we'll have that story when we get there. In her early teens and in her mid-teens and late teens, Louisa May was also working to help make ends meet. All the girls were finding work as seamstresses, governesses, domestic helpers, and so on. Writing became an outlet for Louisa May, creatively and in what one might call therapeutically. She was deeply unhappy at times, contemplated suicide. She wrote a play called The Rival Prima Donnas, which was going to be performed at the Boston Theater, but she ended up burning the play when the actresses couldn't agree on who should play which role. (laughs) Let me put on the all caps button for this. In a play called The Rival Prima Donnas, The actresses could not agree who should play which part, and they fought so much the author burned the play. In an interview, Louisa May Alcott said, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. We're getting slightly ahead of ourselves here. Let's go back to when she was still working Not yet a professional writer, she identified with Charlotte Bronte, who might have been her favorite author. She devoured the Elizabeth Gaskell biography of Charlotte, who who was a few decades ahead of her in time. She herself was busy working. When the Civil War broke out, Louisa May went to Georgetown in Washington, D.C. to work as a nurse in the Union Hospital. After a month or two of that, she caught typhoid fever and had to leave. But the letters she wrote in that brief period were letters home she wrote were published in an anti-slavery publication, Commonwealth, and later were collected into her first book called Hospital Sketches, praised for her observational powers and her humor. The treatment for typhoid was not great. They used a mercury compound in those days, and it weakened her immune system and gave her mercury poisoning with symptoms that would last the rest of her life, hallucinations and vertigo and pain. 
some people think from some of the photos we have of her that she might have had lupus as well. And she ended up taking opium to help with the pain. All in all, a rough go of it in the health department and grinding poverty doesn't help. She was writing for the Atlantic Monthly now, stories mostly, and she was writing novels. And she had a knack for them, as I said, 270 works or publications in all. And this is when she started writing genre pieces under various pseudonyms, gothic thrillers, passionate novels, sensational stories. She wrote a detective story that was a spoof of Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin stories. This is pretty incredible, actually. We're still decades before Conan Doyle. Poe is forging ahead with a new kind of story, which is incredibly smart and brainy of him. And here's Louisa May Alcott coming right after. And she puts her finger on the weakness of the genre. No sooner had Poe invented it than Alcott exposed it. In her version, the detective Dupress doesn't care so much about solving the crime. He's more concerned with setting up how to reveal the solution with a dramatic flourish. Another work from this period, Alcott is in her early 30s now, if you're keeping track at home, is uh, one called A Long Fatal Love Chase. That's the name we know it by today. Had various names over the years. Alcott had recently gone to Europe, and so she set a novel there, a potboiler novel. This one has a Mephistopheles component, a Faustian bargain. A woman who's called Fair Rosamond lives on an island with her cranky grandfather. She starts out, the book starts out with her announcing, I'd gladly sell my soul to Satan for a year of freedom. Enter Philip Tempest, the devil incarnate. His name, almost an anagram of Mephistopheles, with whom she falls in love. She realizes he's, quote, no saint, end quote, but she marries him anyway. They sail away to France in his yacht. He falls in love with her, somewhat to his surprise, and they live more or less happily for a year. Then she discovers that he already has a family, which is a bit of Charlotte Bronte's fingerprints on this, and so she leaves. He hunts her for years. She wears disguises and travels from city to city throughout Europe, and every time things start to go okay for her, every time things settle down and she settles in, Philip Tempest suddenly appears like a demon in a funhouse. The book was unpublished. Too long and too sensational, exclamation mark, said the publisher. It was lost to the sands of time for over a hundred years. Finally, it was published in 1995, and it became a bestseller. I've read some interesting takes on the book and why it was rejected. In one of them, Phoebe Lou Adams says, Well, why was this rejected? Other books at the time were the sensational. Could it be that the problem was the protagonist didn't just roll over and die of shame? Maybe her actions of scooping up the jewels, jumping out of the window at night, and taking off to live a life of freedom was more than Victorian readers or editors were ready to approve. They didn't want a woman who could make it on her own, even after marrying a man and, and turning him into a bigamist. They didn't want an adventurous woman who felt no guilt or shame for what she had done. That's hard to know for sure. 
But if it's true, it makes this passage from the book wonderful. Here's an extract that Wikipedia has highlighted in which Philip Tempest is quizzing Rosamond about how much she loves him. Suppose I broke away and left you, Philip says, or made it impossible for you to stay, that I was base and false, in every way unworthy of your love, and it was clearly right for you to go. What would you do then? Go away, and he interrupted with a triumphant laugh. Die, as heroines always do, tender slaves as they are. No, live and forget you, was the unexpected reply. As much as we love little women, as much as the world has long felt that Joe March is the character that Louisa May was born to write, because it was who she was, especially in the context of her family, there's something about these pot boilers that feels free to me. It's tempting to think that Louisa May was writing little women for herself and the pot boilers for money, but in actuality, she wrote everything for money, little women included. And little women, the story she was asked to write for girls, was the one that set her up financially. But that doesn't mean it's the one where she felt the most free. Let's take a break and then come back with the story of little women. We are back. Two years after writing A Long Fatal Love Chase, Louisa May was asked by her publisher to write a girl's book. She was in her mid-thirties, still in need of money. I said I'd try, she wrote in her journal. I plot away, she wrote later, although I don't enjoy this sort of thing. She sent the first dozen chapters to the publisher. Oh, and here's the kind of story I love. She said, here's the first 12 chapters. It's not working. It's too dull. And the publisher agreed. Then the publisher gave the pages to his niece, who said she enjoyed them. So the publisher gave them to more girls who said that it was, quote, splendid. So the publisher and Louisa May kept going, and the book took off. They were both surprised by its success. I said I like stories like that. What was the one that I had heard before? I think it was Barney, the purple dinosaur. Someone came in with a Barney doll and the head of the network said, this is ridiculous. It sounds so stupid. The show sounds so stupid. We're never going to make this show. And then he or one of his colleagues took the doll home. And that person called up the executives later that night and said, I think we have a problem. His toddler had reacted to the doll like as if it were catnip. I think I have that story right. I love that. Or those stories when music executives in all their wisdom say, ah, this is no good, and then they play the tape for their spouse or someone who says, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> when, where can I buy that? That's kind of what happened here. Louisa May, at least, was practical enough to... Well, actually, speaking of practical, I feel like that word summons forth... Bronson, like a genie being conjured up from a bottle. Bronson was all in favor of Louisa May writing a book for girls. He thought she'd be good at it, and they needed the money. And also, he was trying to get his philosophy manuscript published, and he couldn't. Impenetrable, as always. The editor said, hey, get your daughter to write a novel about girls, and I'll publish your wild philosophy manuscript, too. So, dutiful Louisa May, Cordelia to Bronson's Lear, said, okay, I'll try. 
I've been hard on Bronson and his misfortunes financially, but people did like him. At times, he was a brilliant conversationalist, full of ideas, and his heart was often in the right place, even if that meant that his family paid a price. Louisa May loved him and would write things like, Surely, dear father, some good angel or elf dropped a talisman in your cradle that gave you force to walk through life in quiet sunshine while others groped in the dark. I think of Bronson as kind of an absent-minded professor or one of those aging war protesters who stand on a corner with a sign, their white hair streaming in the wind while cars go flying by honking angrily. And part of you thinks, what are you really getting done out there? Maybe getting a job would be a more valuable use of your time. And if you're if you're paying for his meals when society has said, here's your breadwinner, here's the patriarch, this is the guy, this is the man of your family, you and your sisters, well, and your mother, well, maybe that part of you who wishes that the person would get a job that paid, maybe that part of you is a fairly large part. But you might also think, or at least I do when I drive past those white-haired men who smile and wave at the angry honking cars. Well, God bless him. He's trying to do something good in the world. It's cold and windy out there, and he's not hurting anyone. At least he's trying to leave the world a better place than he found it. And maybe that's all we can do. But back to the practicality of Louisa May in the face of a book she and her publisher thought was dull but was taking off with the younger readers. Louisa May, at least, was practical enough to see that the opinions of the girls were important. They're the best critics, she said, so I should definitely be satisfied. Why is the book so good, or why has it been so compelling? It captures that period in a girl's life when they're too big to be children, but not quite adults yet either. Childhood is ending. Womanhood is beginning. It's time for the heroic journeys to begin. Anyone with siblings can see themselves in those four. Which one am I? Where do I fit? Is this like me? And anyone without siblings can wonder, oh, so this is what it's like to be part of this little band of brothers, or in this case, of course, sisters. Louisa May didn't have a brother. Her mother gave birth to one boy who died two days after he was born. Her mother, Abigail May, recorded the event in her diary with typical grim love. Let's hear a little bit of the book while I read this. Think about how this marches, no pun intended, through how this marches through the girls one by one, establishing their personalities and their relationships with one another. They are four girls with their father far away, their mother busy, and them left to their own devices. The perfect setup for an adventure. Little Women, Chapter 1, Playing Pilgrims. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. It's so dreadful to be poor, sighed Meg, looking down at her old dress. I don't think it's fair for some girls to have plenty of pretty things and other girls nothing at all, added little Amy with an injured sniff. We've got father and mother and each other, said Beth contentedly from her corner. The four young faces on which the firelight shone brightened at the cheerful words, but darkened again as Joe said sadly, We haven't got father, and shall not have him for a long time. She didn't say, 
perhaps never, but each silently added it, thinking of father far away, where the fighting was. Nobody spoke for a minute. Then Meg said in an altered tone, You know the reason Mother proposed not having any presents this Christmas was because it is going to be a hard winter for everyone, and she thinks we ought not to spend money for pleasure when our men are suffering so in the army. We can't do much, but we can make our little sacrifices and ought to do it gladly. But I am afraid I don't. And Meg shook her head as she thought regretfully of all the pretty things she wanted. But I don't think the little we should spend would do any good. We've each got a dollar, and the army wouldn't be much helped by our giving that. I agree not to expect anything from Mother or you, but I do want to buy Undine and Sintran for myself. I've wanted it so long, said Joe, who was a bookworm. I plan to spend mine in new music, said Beth with a little sigh, which no one heard but the hearthbrush and kettle holder. I shall get a nice box of Faber's drawing pencils. I really need them, said Amy decidedly. Mother didn't say anything about our money, and she won't wish us to give up everything. Let's each buy what we want and have a little fun. I'm sure we work hard enough to earn it, cried Joe, examining the heels of her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. I know I do, teaching those tiresome children nearly all day when I'm longing to enjoy myself at home, began Meg in the complaining tone again. You don't have half such a hard time as I do, said Joe. How would you like to be shut up for hours with a nervous, fussy old lady who keeps you trotting, is never satisfied, and worries you till you're ready to fly out the window or cry? It's naughty to fret, but I do think washing dishes and keeping things tidy is the worst work in the world. It makes me cross, and my hands get so stiff I can't practice well at all. And Beth looked at her rough hands with a sigh, that anyone could hear that time. I don't believe any of you suffer as I do, cried Amy, for you don't have to go to school with impertinent girls who plague you if you don't know your lessons and laugh at your dresses and label your father if he isn't rich and insult you when your nose isn't nice. If you mean libel, I'd say so and not talk about labels as if Papa was a pickle bottle, advised Joe, laughing. I know what I mean, and you needn't be satirical about it. It's proper to use good words and improve your vocabulary, returned Amy with dignity. Don't peck at one another, children. Don't you wish we had the money Papa lost when we were little, Joe? Dear me, how happy and good we'd be if we had no worries, said Meg, who could remember better times. You said the other day you thought we were a deal happier than the king children— for they were fighting and fretting all the time in spite of their money. So I did, Beth. Well, I think we are, for though we do have to work, we make fun of ourselves and are a pretty jolly set, as Joe would say. Joe does use such slang words, observed Amy with a reproving look at the long figure stretched on the rug. Joe immediately sat up, put her hands in her pockets, and began to whistle. Don't, Joe, it's so boyish. That's why I do it. I detest rude, unladylike girls. I hate affected, nimini-pimini chits. Birds in their little nests agree, sang Beth, the peacemaker, with such a funny face that both sharp voices softened to a laugh, and the pecking ended for that time.
Really, girls, you are both to be blamed, said Meg, beginning to lecture in her elder sisterly fashion. You are old enough to leave off boyish tricks and to behave better, Josephine. It didn't matter so much when you were a little girl, but now you are so tall and turn up your hair, you should remember that you are a young lady. There we go. There's the first part, Meg and Joe. Joe is so boyish, even to the choice of her name. She's Joe from Facts of Life, right? With Blair as Meg. <laughs> you see that? The elderly sister who loves to lecture. Also kind of a foil, also an equal, also a rival. And the other sisters playing their very pronounced roles as well. The book was an immediate hit, selling out quickly and going through printing after printing. Alcott became... Famous and successful, so successful, she used to answer her door disguised as a servant, hoping to fool the eager fans who wanted to meet Louisa May Alcott. She's not home. <laughs> it's just me, the servant here. Goodbye. Wonder if it worked. She also didn't reveal herself as the author of the gothic and sensationalized tales hiding behind the pseudonym. She was now a, a writer for girls. Girl's author, with all the gentle morality of that, all the, all the edges were smoothed down. She wrote some sequels to her bestseller. The part we usually think of as part two of Little Women was actually a sequel called Good Wives when it was first published, a year after Little Women came out. Little Men came out a couple of years later, and Joe's Boys and How They Turned Out, a sequel to Little Men, came out in 1886. Aunt Joe's Scrap Bag, a collection of short stories for children, also benefited from Louisa May's fame as the author of Little Women, six volumes of stories in all. The identity as Louisa May Alcott, author of beloved stories and novels for children, had an effect. I mentioned how she didn't reveal herself as the writer of Pot Boilers because that wouldn't have fit the image. She also set aside her more potentially controversial beliefs. Although the father and little women is a chaplain in the war, living away from the family, which I suspect is because Bronson up close in fiction on the page would not have been all that sympathetic as a character. Anyway, although Louisa May had been an abolitionist, had served as a nurse in the cold in the Civil War, and we were still only a few years away from the Emancipation Proclamation, and the book itself is set during the war. There's no discussion of slavery or its aftermath. We will have a guest next time who highlights this. The focus of her remixing of Little Women takes this head on. Where are the black people? They existed. So why are they not in here? Why are we reading a book so blithely for 150 years and watching movie after movie and show after show without feeling that absence? Slavery as an issue was hugely important to Louisa May and all those around her. Is it enough to say that this is a children's book and there's no place for it? Why is that acceptable? And should we as readers in the 21st century just accept that as the reason? A lot of critics have said yes. And this is also a problem for women's rights. Women, girls, little women, the hearth and home. This is too safe, too full of stereotypes. This is this doesn't break out of what we're trying to break out of. We need to move beyond it. This scenario, say the critics, takes us right back to the Victorian era. It doesn't do enough to break that mold, which we should keep in mind as well.
Louise May Alcott had no kids of her own, though she took care of a niece and several other family members throughout her life. We've talked somewhat microscopically about her relationship with her father. But if we zoom out a bit, we can see how history works its mysterious ways. In 1692, a man named Samuel Sewell served as a judge in the notorious Salem witch trials, which led to torture and death. He later regretted his participation, believing that God had sent afflictions after the trial to punish him. Two of his daughters and his mother-in-law died within five years of the trials, and his wife gave birth to a stillborn child. Sewell called for public fasting and prayers of atonement. He lived another thirty or so years after that, writing about the witch trials, which he viewed now as an abomination— not because witchcraft wasn't potentially real, but because he had ruled with insufficient evidence. He tried to make things right. One of the few judges who did. He also wrote the first anti-slavery tract published in what would eventually become the United States. That was in 1700 when that came out. Then, 150 or so years later, his great-great-great-granddaughter would still be agitating against slavery, and she lived through its ending though she didn't write about it in her most famous work, Little Women. Yes, that's the big reveal. She was the great-great-great-granddaughter of the Salem witch trial judge, Samuel Sewell. And now, if we jump 150 years later, we see some problems and flaws with Little Women as well. We go from witches to Little Women to today in two jumps of 150 years. Progress creeps forward. And I'm glad it does. But it takes so long. I don't blame Louisa May for that, but it's a fair question to ask when we're lining up the books on our shelf and those of our children. It's a fair question for our analysis, too. I will give it my usual position, which is that we read the book for its strengths and we wrestle with its weaknesses because that's how we learn and grow. Louisa May herself had an interesting take on this or something similar. This is what this brings to mind for me. I previewed this at the beginning. She was asked once to do more for women's rights, and she, here she was, supporting the family that her father never could. And she said to a friend, quote, I am so busy just now proving woman's right to labor that I have no time to help prove woman's right to vote, end quote. There's something instructive about that. I think we sometimes don't recognize the financial pressures or the family pressures that are on people when they do the things that they do and when they make the choices that they make. She herself was not viewing herself as a, an artist with unlimited freedom and unlimited resources. I think that's how she viewed her own life. Her own fate, her own destiny was to care for those in her family when it came time to write a semi-autobiographical book, she called it simply work. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Louisa May Alcott for her efforts. Bronson, the father, was not an easy dude to be around. One of those once-a-month-at-dinner kind of guys, which was how he was to his friends. Not a one dinner a month kind of guy, which was how he sometimes seemed to his family, who were hungry. 
Maybe he only put one dinner a month on their table. In our next episode, we will hear from a contemporary writer who has remixed Little Women and given it an exciting new setting. Speaking of learning and growing, this is a great chance to hear about a piece of history I was not familiar with and should have been. The Freed People's Colony of Roanoke Island, where in 1863, a community of recently emancipated black people were forging a new life for themselves. An excellent setting for a set of four siblings to start their journey. We'll hear from the author next time. I do hope you will find time to join us for that. What else can I preview for you? We've got Mike Palindrome in part two of our look at Sylvia Plath coming up. This one focuses on Plath and Ted Hughes, along with the biographer Heather Clark, who will be joining us soon. She's written an impressive new tome on Plath. She had access to a lot of previously unknown and or underutilized source materials. How about the Oedipus Trilogy? A new translation of that has come out. We'll be talking to the translator. And speaking of translations, translator extraordinaire Stephen Mitchell is going to join us to talk about his new book on The First Christmas. We've got Charles Dickens on the schedule. Kurt Vonnegut, who am I missing? So many. Evelyn Waugh, how about that? He's coming up too. And Gwendolyn Brooks. And the wonderful Farrah Jasmine Griffin. You will want to hear that one. And much, much more. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.